It is good to be here, to be singing with you, and to open God's Word together. We're going to be in Exodus 3 this morning, so you can go ahead and turn there. Pastor Mike has been preaching through the book of Acts, and we're taking a break from that this morning, obviously, but I wanted to preach something that was kind of connected to that. And last week, Pastor Mike was in Acts 7, uh, right before Stephen gets stoned, he preaches this sermon, and he pretty much preaches the entire Old Testament. And so it made it pretty easy to be able to pick something that would tie in. But this account in Exodus is something specifically mentioned there. It is the account of God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. So you have likely heard it before. Um, If you've been reading through the Bible in a year like we've been doing uh, together, you have read it recently. If you're a little bit like me and are already somehow a couple of days behind. You've read it even more recently, Um, but hopefully it was good. Uh, Let's go ahead and stand together, and we're going to read the entire chapter, and it is 22 verses, and we stand together as a way to show respect to God, but if you want to respectfully sit because it's so long, I understand. Here we go. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you. 
and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and all the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and you shall, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Father, thank you for this passage and what it reveals about you. I pray that as we look at it this morning, it will cause us to worship you in spirit and in truth and make us more like Christ. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Moses is one of the most famous people in the Old Testament. He would have been a hero of the faith for any young Jewish person. He was famously saved at his birth by his mother, putting him in a basket and sending him down the river. He was raised in the house of Pharaoh by Pharaoh's daughter. He grew up there and, in fact, had to flee from Egypt at one point in a story that you're likely familiar with. He saw a... Egyptian taskmaster, I guess you'd say, is the word that they use, who was beating another uh, Jewish man, a Hebrew worker. And Moses saves this man. He ends up killing the Egyptian in doing so. And when he's talking to some of the Hebrew people the next day, they tell him, who made you a prince and judge over us? Verse 14. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? They don't have any real respect for Moses as someone who tried to help them or save them. And now the Egyptians end up being mad at him for killing one of their own. And so he has to flee from Egypt. In doing so, he meets his wife and becomes employed by his father-in-law. And we fast forward 40 years from that scene. And Moses is here with the flock of his father-in-law. It's interesting that Moses doesn't have his own flock. He's still just watching after his father-in-laws. In the wilderness is where he is. And very famously, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. The angel of the Lord comes up certain times in the Bible. It's very important to distinguish The angel of the Lord from an angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord is just a regular old angel. And not that angels can exactly be regular, but that is the regular kind of those sorts of things. But the angel of the Lord is always very specifically referring to someone who will turn out to be God himself. And we know that from a variety of passages, one of which is this very passage. It's impossible for it to be more clear. The angel of the Lord appears to him, and when the angel of the Lord starts talking in verse 8, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we know the angel of the Lord is identifying himself as God. 
And he appears to Moses in the midst of a burning bush. And I was all excited this week to look into do a bunch of horticultural uh, research about like what are plants like in this wilderness. And I just thought it was going to be like some sort of fun thing. And turns out they just look like desert shrubs. There's nothing exciting about this at all. But why a bush? Why would God appear to Moses in a burning bush? Some people want to put special significance on the fact that it was a bush. Other people, they try and make some reference that the word bush and the word Sinai in the Hebrew language sound very familiar. And we know that where God appears to him is actually Mount Sinai. It will, it will be what is eventually referred to as Mount Sinai, where the law is given to Moses. And so maybe there's some special significance there. But I think it's most likely that there's only so many different things that you can burn in the desert. Uh, God is God, and so he can do whatever he wants. He could have, you know, appeared as a burning rock or a burning sand dune or a burning buzzard or something like that. I feel like Moses and the burning buzzard has a certain nice ring to it. Um, I also feel like the burning buzzard sort of sounds like a tavern in Mordor, right? Like, it's a two days journey from Minas Morgul, right? On the plateau of Gorgoroth or something like that, right? But it would have been nice, but no. There's a lot more orcs in my Bible, perhaps, than yours. I'm not sure. But... He comes in a burning bush. We don't exactly know why a bush, but we do know that God likes to appear as fire. He has already appeared as fire in Genesis 15 when he creates this covenant with Abraham. He, he, is, he takes the appearance of a burning pot of fire. In Exodus 13, he's going to lead people, his people through the wilderness as a pillar of fire. Exodus 19, when the law is given, it says that God descended in fire. Ezekiel, Daniel, and John all see him as fire or with features that are like fire. His judgments are described as fire. He's described as a consuming fire. There's a lot of fire in the Bible in reference to God. And this is just another example. God likes to appear as this powerful element. And so he appears as a burning bush. And this wouldn't have been all that exciting. Moses probably burned bushes every night when it got cold, right? You've got to start a fire somehow. But he sees this bush burning, and you can just imagine Moses staring at it, like, how, how is it burning so hot? It seems to only be burning bigger, and you can just imagine him staring at it. And you know when you stare at something, like your peripheral vision starts to go away, and he's, he's sort of like approaching it, like looking a little more closely. Have you ever seen anything from far away that you were like, can that, is that real? That can't be real. I don't know if you've ever been at Costco and wandered through the television aisle. Hopefully you do that every time you arrive at Costco, just like I do. But you see something at the end and you're like, how much is that TV? How big is that? Is that 4K? It's like this amazing thing. You can't believe your eyes. And so this, I just imagine Moses like, what, what is that? And he's walking closer and he's focused on these things. Who knows what the flock is doing? Hopefully taking care of themselves. Sheep are good at that. And he gets closer. And finally, God realizes that he has got Moses' attention. And he calls out to him, Moses, Moses. When you call someone's name twice in Hebrew culture, that was a way to show endearment and affection. When I start using my kids' names more than once, it usually indicates annoyance, but not so in theirs, right? This is just this display of love. Moses says, here I am, kind of this typical response when someone calls your name. Here I am. And God tells him, stop. 
You can't come any closer. You need to properly prepare yourself to encounter God. It is, in fact, dangerous for you to come any closer to me until you've properly prepared yourself. And he tells him, take your sandals off your feet. This was actually kind of an unusual thing. The only other time we see it in the Old Testament, I believe, is when Joshua encounters the angel of the Lord right before the conquest, right before they, they conquer the, the promised land. But this is not kind of a normal thing, but God, God has sort of invented this way for Moses to give an outward physical sign of readiness and preparedness to approach God. Take your sandals off your feet. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then, and this is going to be the rest of our passage, God continues to reveal certain things about himself. In fact, we're going to talk about five ways that God reveals himself to Moses so that Moses, and by extension us, would trust in the Lord as his deliverer. Five ways God revealed himself so that we would trust in the Lord as our deliverer. The first is, verse 6, he is historically acquainted with his people. That's what God reveals. God reveals that he's historically acquainted with his people. He tells Moses, I am the God of your father. Your actual physical father believed in me. The same God that you saw your dad worship, that's me. And in fact, more than that, it's not just that I'm the God of your father, it's that I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the father of the patriarchs. You are descended from these people that you have heard of, that you know about, and I am the one who they worshiped. I am that same God. So he tells them he's historically acquainted with his people. He also reveals that he is familiar with the troubles of his people. In verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Three different descriptions that we get of God's familiarity. He has seen their afflictions. He has heard their cry. He knows their suffering. This wasn't some big surprise to God that, oh my goodness, I totally forgot that I left them in Egypt and uh, we better do something about this. No, he knew. He knew that they were in trouble. And he was familiar with it. I have young children. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And you very quickly, after you have children, begin to recognize the sound of their cry. It is very familiar to you. There's nothing better than being at I don't know, someone else's house and hearing some loud crash in the back room. And suddenly you hear the cry and you listen and you say, eh, not my kid. It's someone else's problem. <laughs> you go deal with it. Mark knows. Yeah, it's the best. God is saying, I know my children. I know their cry. I am familiar with their sufferings. This hasn't escaped my attention. It's not a surprise to me. I know and I have come down to deliver them. That's the third thing God reveals. God reveals he's historically acquainted with his people, that he's familiar with their troubles, and he reveals that he has promised to deliver his people. 
He says, I've come down to deliver them out of the, out of the Egyptians. All this affliction, all this trouble, all this difficulty, I not only know about it, but I'm going to free them from that. I'm going to take them out of this hard situation. They're going to be able to run away from it. I'm going to redeem them from these people who have captured them in slavery. And only, not only am I going to bring them out of Egypt, but I'm going to give them something great also. I'm going to bring them into this new land, this good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm not quite sure why he chose milk and honey exactly. Um, kind of an oddball thing, but the, the point is that it's, it's really good. Land of milk and cinnamon toast crunch, maybe. Not only is it good, but it's large. It's a broad land. It can hold six different people groups that are already there. Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. There are a lot of people there. And it supports all of them, but I have given this land to you. Every time I read a list of all these different Canaanite peoples. I'm reminded, I heard a sermon once from John MacArthur. I don't even remember what he was preaching on, but it involved these people groups. And he asked at one point, have you ever met a Jebusite? And I don't know why that just struck me as funny, but now I think of that every single time I read it. And maybe now you will too. Have you ever met a Jebusite? I suppose now we know they all come from Florida, but at the time it just seemed like, oh, I guess I really haven't. But he's saying there's all these people and I'm giving that land to you. Not only that, he promises in verse 12, he's going to bring them out of Egypt, he's going to bring them into a new land, and at the end of it, how will you know when I have completed everything that I promised Moses? He gives a sign of fulfillment, it's called. How, how will Moses know when all of this has, is, is sure, it's to be fulfilled? He tells him, verse 12, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He wants Moses to be clear that this isn't, sort of, this isn't just some kind of like spiritual savior, right? That, that you'll be free in your hearts even though you'll be slaves in Egypt. Like, no, 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 no. You will physically no longer be there anymore. And you're going to worship me right here. You're going to lead all of those people right here. And you will worship me together. And then you will know that I have done what I said that I would do. Then you'll see that sign of fulfillment. And at this point, Moses has a question. In fact, his question came right before this. And you can imagine Moses sort of nodding along with everything that's happening. This all sounds great. God has appeared, the angel of the Lord, he's heard their cries, going to deliver you out of Egypt, Uh uh-huh, 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 I'm going to lead you into this new land, all right, great, it's a good land, fantastic, it's a big land, even better, and I, he says in verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. You'd imagine Moses, like, whoa, whoa, like this all sounded great for a moment, but what do you mean you're going to send me? 
To be fair, this is sort of a, this is again, this passage is sort of filled with common Middle Eastern sayings. This is sort of a standard, kind of polite objection. No one would ever get offended if you said something along the lines of what Moses said, who am I? That is, that's kind of a normal question. But it seems like there is something more to it. Because remember, Moses has already been rejected by his people once. He had this esteemed position in Pharaoh's house. He tried to help one of his countrymen, one of his people, and it went poorly. He killed someone and it drove him out of Egypt. The Hebrew people were not impressed by his efforts to help. And you've got to imagine Moses thinking, God, I have, I have already tried to do something like this. If you want to do it, that sounds great. But me, who am I? It doesn't make any sense that you would use me to accomplish this task. It's kind of like if Let My People Go were the title track to Macklemore's new EP. Like, I understand that this is important, but really this person to deliver this message? And so Moses, why, why Moses? You notice God doesn't even answer the question. God doesn't say, Moses, it's because you're so great, because I see these leadership skills in you, because you have this long track record of always doing the right thing. He just says, look, do you want to know why? I will be with you, verse 12, but I will be with you. I'm coming alongside of you to accomplish my purposes. God reveals that he's historically acquainted with his people, that he's familiar with their troubles. He has promised to deliver his people. And he reveals in verse 13, he reveals his name to his people. And this is a big deal. Verse 13, Moses brings up this other objection. Well, God, I have this other problem. If I come to the people and say, come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is your name? What shall I say to them? This was, again, not the most unreasonable question in the world. Moses certainly wants some reassurance, but it would have been natural in their culture, everyone would have believed in multiple gods. Everyone would have been polytheistic. You're talking about a people group, the Jewish people, who were in theory monotheistic. That's what they were supposed to be. But they've been in Israel. I'm sorry, they've been in Egypt for hundreds of years now. Culturally speaking, I'm sure many of them believed in multiple gods. And so he wants to know, like when they want to know, like which God is this that has sent us to you? What do I say? How do I answer them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In verse 15, we've got to keep going to get the whole context. God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. If you look in verse 15, the Lord, that word Lord, it'll be in all capital letters in your Bible. 
God is giving himself a special name here. It's a name that you may have heard this reference before. It's Yahweh. And anytime you see Lord in all capital letters like that in your Bible, that is the use of the word Yahweh. There are many names for God, but this is sort of this very special name that, that God explains here. The reason it's special is because at the end of verse 15, God specifically says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God is saying, this is sort of the most important aspect of me. Names, names were meant to indicate something about your character and nature. And God, God is trying to say, this is how you should remember me, and this is how everyone who comes after you should remember me as well, as Yahweh. And the word, the name Yahweh, is connected to the verb to be. And in first person, when you, like, to be in the first person is I am. We're about to get grammatical here for just a moment, so you have to bear with me, right? If you say I am, you're using in the first person. And when you use it in the third person, he is, that's how you would normally say it, but the way this verb works is there's not only, it's not only used in the third person, but it is the causative form of it. So when he says Yahweh, what he's trying to say is, I am the God who is. I am the God who will be. I am the God who has caused everything to be. And I am the God who will continue to cause everything to be throughout all time. You can see why he shortened the name, just to Yahweh, because it's kind of a mouthful. But that's what it's supposed to indicate. And in fact, when you see in verse 14, Moses said, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am. You see how I am is also in capital letters? That's supposed to show you the connection between those. That the name, the Lord, Yahweh, in capital letters, is, is linked intrinsically to this, to this idea of being and of causation. And so that's what God is saying. Tell them who I am. Tell them that I am Yahweh. I am the God who is. I'm the one who causes, who causes everything to be. Interestingly, this is not actually the first use of the term Yahweh. This is where we get the big explanation. But God is known as Yahweh beginning in verse Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. Way back in Genesis 4, there's a reference to God being referenced as the Lord, as Yahweh. And he's called Yahweh throughout Genesis. Abraham calls him that, Isaac, Jacob. But none of Jacob's children are ever recorded in the Bible as referring to God as Yahweh. And so you can see how that name, especially like not only after Jacob's children, but after all these years in Egypt, you can see how that name would have been lost. Somehow they stopped referring to God as that. And God wants them to know that this is the name I want you to know me as more than anything else. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He reveals himself by giving his name to his people. And finally, the fifth way God reveals himself is he reveals that he'll perform miracles amongst his people. I can't help but feel like verse 18 has one of the, is one of the most comforting verses to Moses in this entire chapter. 
He tells them, go to the people, go to the elders of Israel, tell them that I've sent you, tell them this plan. And in verse 18, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him the same thing. Right? Moses' first assurance is they will listen to you, the people that you're going as my representative. They will listen. They will hear you. They will accept your message. They will believe that I sent you. And you all together will go to Pharaoh. And you'll ask him, says, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness. This is kind of a funny thing. Like, are the, are the Israelites just like asking for a long weekend? It's like President's Day. Like, I'm pretty sure we should have some time off, Pharaoh. No, no, no. What they're saying, it's kind of a, it's kind of a strange thing. You, you can sort of imagine them winking as they ask the question. Uh, we want three days off, but Pharaoh would have known exactly what they were asking for. Like, oh, you want to go three days in the opposite direction of us to go worship God? Like, he would have understood that they weren't coming back. It's like asking someone, how much money do you have on you? Like, yeah, that's a simple question, but you know there's something else there. Someone just asked me that this week. I'm still missing money. You know who you are. Uh, but it just implies more than it actually asks. And God says, really clearly, I know the king of Egypt, verse 19. He will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand. And I will perform all the wonders I will do, I will do in it. That would sound great if that's what God said. I'm going to perform all these wonders, stretch out my hand, perform wonders. That sounds like so nice. No, 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 no. God says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. That is slightly more frightening. And in fact, we know the end of the story. We know that there were 10 really bad plagues, pretty horrific for Egypt because Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go and worship him. So that is how God has revealed himself to Moses and how he would reveal him to a people to to his people. Let them know like I'm the God of their fathers, familiar with their trouble, I will deliver them. They'll know my name, and I'll perform miracles amongst them. I can't help but feel like God has said very similar things to us. God has seen your affliction. He has heard your cry. He knows your sufferings. And it's easy to forget that, isn't it? And you look around and it seems like you're seeing people that don't seem to have the same struggles as you and they don't struggle as difficult and somehow they ended up with this lion's share of blessing and you feel like, what, what about me? How come God hasn't given me more than I have? It's easy to be angry with God and to forget that he knows your trouble. Why does God let people suffer? 
Why does God let people go through hardship? He certainly saved Israel, but couldn't he have saved them a little bit sooner? Some people died and never got the salvation. What about those guys? Was it unfair to them? Why all the suffering, God? The Bible is actually pretty clear on this issue. It gives a number of reasons why God lets people suffer. In fact, if I can just read a few of them real quick. Romans 5.3 says that we can rejoice in our sufferings. That every time you suffer, it's an opportunity for rejoicing. Kind of puts it on its head. Romans 8.17 says suffering is somehow connected to being heirs with Christ and is connected to our future glorification. Philippians 1.29 says suffering is a gift, that it has been granted to you to suffer, which is always kind of an interesting thing. Every once in a while, I've heard someone ask, would you ever, uh, what is it like, would you ever turn down a blessing from God? And I don't know, suffering is a blessing from God, and I kind of try and avoid that, so it sounds like yes. But it's an interesting thing to think about, that when you suffer, this is God's grace toward you. He has granted to you to suffer. 2 Thessalonians 1.5 says suffering advances the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 1.6 says suffering proves faith as genuine. 1 Peter 3.17 says suffering is God's will. 1 Peter 4.19 says suffering lets you trust God. It's amazing how much good suffering does in our lives. And in fact, you already know this. If you look back on your life and think about when did I grow the most in Christ? When was I walking most closely with the Lord? When did I become, when was my sanctification most obvious? It's when life was hard. And you didn't have any choice but to trust God. And yet this is something that we want to get out of so fast. And yet this is one of the primary ways that God sanctifies us and allows the gospel to become real to other people. Colossians 1 talks about how through our suffering we fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. So, so what Christ did for them can be made more real because, how, because of how people see the suffering in your own life for the sake of the gospel. God knows that you are suffering. God knows your pain. He has heard your cry. And sometimes, God, it is God's will for you to endure this so that you will be made more like Christ. But God has come down to deliver us as well. We know that just like the Israelites were taken away from the pain and the bondage and the slavery that was going on in Egypt, we can be removed from pain and bondage and slavery to sin. That we can be given a new nature, that we can be forgiven of our sins. And not only do we get to dodge all of the penalty of sin that we rightly deserved because of everything that we have done wrong, but God has even promised us something good, a good land and a broad one, citizenship in heaven, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Even now on earth, the ability to endure hardship and pain and suffering, knowing that we have a better inheritance in heaven. God delivers us in the same way that we can be removed from sin's penalty and given even more, so much more than we deserve.
God's name is also a source of hope for us. One of my favorite things to remember when I'm studying the Old Testament is that it is the same God that we believe in. This was written so long ago. Verse 15 says, This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. We are helping to fulfill that verse right now as, re- as we remember that the God that we worship is the God who is and who causes to be. The same God that removed Israel from slavery in Egypt is the same God that can remove us from being dead in our trespasses and sins and can make us alive together with Christ. Sometimes it seems impossible that we could change, that we could be more like Christ, that we could stop sinning in this particular way that somehow seems to come up over and over and over again in our life. But our God is a God who performs miracles who saves entire peoples from slavery, who can stretch out his mighty hand to not only save us, but to change us, to make us more like Christ. God offers us the same kind of deliverance that he offered to the Israelites here. Praise God that we have such a deliverer. Let's pray. God, thank you for everything that you give us. Thank you for your grace and your kindness and the knowledge that you are our deliverer. You have come down to deliver us in the person of Jesus Christ. You have removed sin's penalty from us through faith in Christ. And you have secured our citizenship in heaven through the shed blood of Christ. Thank you for that, Father. I pray that we would suffer patiently, that we would remember your name, Father, and that those things would be a hope for us. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.